Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Well, welcome to another edition of Word in Your Ear. When I was at the NME in the late 70s during the second coming of uh, of Liverpool, we used to be sent up there pretty much weekly to collect the thoughts of the various bands that were making the running. And it's an absolute joy to find that 44 years later, the guitarist of one of them has the second volume of his memoirs out, both of them Sunday Times bestsellers, uh, Bunny Man, and echoes. Really lovely to see you. Hello, Will. How are you doing, Will Sargent? Nice one. Thanks, Grace. You know, Good. Where? I'm, wasn't it? Where do we find you? Yeah, I'm living uh, it's sort of between Ormskirk and Southport in the sort of fields. Fields. <laughs> you know. Excellent. So you you're um you must be thrilled with the. With the sales, with the success of the books, they've both been, uh, you know, bestsellers. Yeah, you know, it's it's amazing, really, because, like, you know, I was rubbish at school and wasn't interested. <clears throat> I was interested, but there was too much other stuff going on, you know, where, you know, throwing mud at, mud at each other and stuff like that. <laughs> it was kind of a... School was not... It, it was not seen the way it is seen now, I don't think. It was just, like, somewhere you had to go and you were... You know, you had to sort of put up with it. it in our class, anyway, nobody wanted to be there, you know, even the teacher. <laughs> I can't get over your memories, the clarity of your memories of that time. You talk about this, because I mean, the first, in fact, we should just ask you about how many volumes they're going to be, because the first one goes up to pretty much the start of the Bunny Men, and then the second volume goes up to 1982. So presumably there'll be a third, possibly a fourth. I don't, well, I don't know. I'm gonna. The next one's going to be Porcupine Ocean Rank. There's a lot of stuff happened. Yeah, uh, I don't know whether I'm going to venture into the the fifth album, one that didn't have a title. That was like when everything was starting to go a bit naff. Yeah. <laughs> Until Ocean Rain, it was kind of um, yeah. We were all firing. On, we were all on the same team, you know. And it's it changed. So I don't know whether I, I like I like writing about this period because it was a great period. It was like comradeship, and you know, um, everybody together. It was always against the world kind of thing. 
but the, the fifth album started to change. But that the detail of that. I mean, the first almost the first half of the first book is about your school days. You can remember all the teachers' names. You can remember what they were wearing. You can remember the things they said in class. You can remember the comics you bought, the, the shops, the food, the clothes, yeah. the detail. So did you keep diaries? How do you remember that so clearly? Uh, I never really got into drugs <laughs> that much. <laughs> I dabbled a bit, but not never made a fucking career out of it, you know what I mean? So it's, um, uh, I think it just, I just misremember stuff. Yeah, I don't know. Like, the, the thing is, it looks like you remember every single thing, but when you add all the things up and they're in a line and you've got, like, the internet to research the dates of when things happened, and yeah. it looks like, it just looks more impressive than it is. You just remember key things. You know, I can remember walking to school with, with no, you know, with sandals on in the snow. I can remember it, you know. Yeah. And I remember what it looked like because it was, like, all white and, you know, it was a, an amazing thing, you know, it stuck in my head. Like, and, I've, and I've kind of painted a picture of it all, you know. Um, and I've revisited a lot of these places as well. So I know that, you know, Rockfield, there is, you know, mistletoe in the trees and the garden and all that stuff yeah. because the other week, you know. Um, so, yeah, you can kind of like, it's not changed much, you know, really. So it's, you can kind of fill in the the sort of gaps and it would have been the same then. Like that view across where, when we walked to school, that view is it's not quite the same now. There's a few more buildings, but it's it looks right over towards Bootle and the docks and everything. You're a bit higher up. You can see the cranes, you know, and all that stuff. Um, and that's still there. You know, you can still see that. So, it's so observant. It's like a it's a sort of like a social history. There's one bit where you describe a device. Your cousin, I think, brings back a device that changes black and white TV sets into colour. Just tell us about that. It's amazing. We were fascinated. It was like, it was just kind of blue at the top, but kind of like browny red in the middle and green at the bottom. And and it had like a sort of lens in it, you know. So it was it was like a screen a, that you put over the front, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, you just put it over the front of the telly. And yeah. it was like this one, got called the telly, you know. But it, it was just, you know, she was like a character, you know. She was, yeah. um, uh, you know, the word on the streets is she was working with Lucille Ball in America, you know. And then uh, somebody got shot in a hotel in New York and it you know, made a, she had like a nervous kind of breakdown kind of thing and came back home and that was it. And you know, we only ever used to see her when she was in bed. You know, we'd go up to the yeah. um, grandma's house and she'd be in bed upstairs. She was always just in bed. You what know, about the, but, the, the musical side? You only mentioned the Beatles in passing at one point. And there's very little mention of the kind of 60s Liverpool scene. Is that because it didn't make a big impression on you? Because you were 12, I suppose, when the Beatles split up. Or because you wanted to concentrate on the kind of second coming of Liverpool, your period? Yeah, well, we never saw it. It's like, like remember, like the sounds of the thing, the new Mersey beat. And we were all like, we were a bit miffed with that. You know, we didn't like it. We didn't like, we didn't want to be associated with it. You know, we wanted to be our own thing. We were coming from the punk rock world, weren't we? So it was like, do it yourself and we don't need anybody, you know. And there's still, like, a lot of that in us, you know, and definitely in me. You know, that's why I do all my little solo projects and all that sort of stuff. They don't sell anything. I'm not bothered. It's not, like, what it's about. It's about being yeah. creative. Um, so, uh, yeah, it was kind of, 
anti all that really. You know, I remember saying in one of the interviews, I hate the Beatles. Yes. You know, I don't hate, don't hate the Beatles. <laughs> you know, but I said it. It was a great way of getting attention. <laughs> well, you know, it was like, it was just like, shut up, oh, the bloody Beatles. And the yeah, Beatles. yeah, no, I understood. Like, the thing is, at the time, Liverpool didn't give a shit about the Beatles. They didn't have any tours. They didn't have this and that. They didn't have the cavern walks and, you know, uh, taxi rides around to Ringo's house or whatever, you know, and, you know, plaques on the wall and nothing like that. They were like... That's that true. Was, you know, the, the council didn't get it. You know, no, they well, they knocked down the cavern. I mean, that didn't really happen till the, the mid-'80s, really. But I wanted to ask you about another bit of the early bit of the book. It's about the... I forgot how violent the, the, the 70s was and all those gangs, you know, the uh, yeah. the late 60s and early 70s, skinhead gangs, the clockwork orange droogs at the football matches, you know. And you describe yourself as a fully paid-up coward. Do you look yeah. back on that with a, with a sense of kind of nostalgia? It seemed quite thrilling now in retrospect, didn't you? Yeah, you know, it was, but it wasn't like... It was gangs, but it was nothing to do with, like, you know... Uh, riding lucky bikes around London and selling drugs or nothing, you know what yeah. I mean? It was, it was just thuggery. Yeah, it's just what you know. Like every school, you know, was scared of the next school or was going to have a, a scrap on the on the playing fields with the next school. You know, at some point, you know, yeah, oh, they they coming over tonight. We're going to batter them, you know, and all that. It was all like that all the time. It was kind of like it was odd. It was just. A violent thing, you know, but it, it, it was more a kicking and a, uh, you know, it wasn't really knifing people and stuff like this. You know, there wasn't so many deaths. <laughs> you know, bicycle chain around the head is probably all you could, you know, the worst thing Hope you could for. <laughs> <laughs> if you were lucky. <laughs> yeah. There's some not right nut jobs in our in our road, in Station Road, you know. Like, and like you say, I used to avoid it all, but I, I was a sort of observer, you know. Yeah. The sniper in the bushes or something. So the first kind of gang, I suppose, that you seem to join is a, is a sort of hippie gang, and you talk about buying clothes from the small lads at the back of the enemy. What kind of clothes were you buying and wearing at that time? Uh, well, uh, there was like flares, obviously, brushed denim flares. They were big. Um, then you can even get like a denim long coat with like a fairy collar. I had one of them. <laughs> uh, and like Air Force coats, they were big. Yeah. After but I used to inherit a lot of stuff off the lads over the road, the Mazenko boys, because they used to buy all that. They had, like, jobs and stuff and money. So they'd buy all this stuff, get fed up with it, and I'd get it for, like, a song, you know, or a couple of records or something, you know. So um, we had all, you know, it was always it was always Wranglers then. Yeah, Wrangler jeans. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't really Levi's. Still flying you know. the flag. <laughs> it was uh, more Wrangler jackets and things like that. Um yeah, so, yeah, loon pants, they were big and wide. 30-inch <laughs> bottoms. It was, it was all about the, the inches, the inch, you know, the inchery. You had to I get remember that. Like Having bigger flares to the next guy. Yeah, yeah. I used to love, like, was walking down the street, I used to love watching them flowing in the wind like this, you know. <laughs> like, litany loons or whatever, you know, you used to think they were really cool. Like, like platform clogs on. Nearly breaking my ankles. <laughs> I love all not... the I love all the groups that you 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 talk about. This I wanted to ask you about about three of them actually in particular who obviously made a really big impression. One is Jethro Tull. 
You talk oh, yeah, about so. Jethro Tull, how much you loved them, and uh, I did too, the stand-up album and all that. What was it about Jethro Tull that was so uh, enthralling? I don't know. It's like they, they had like this sort of, They were obviously a really good band. They're tight and could play amazingly. But they, were, they had this sort of cross between folk and blues that was... It was quite b forty in a way. Yeah. You know, like that's that song song for Jeffrey is very b forty, I think. And, and I know that they were kind of mates because they did touring together, you know, b yeah. Um But it was all coming from that bluesy stuff, but it was kind of, a, it wasn't, it just seemed to be a bit different. And I, I loved the look of them, you know, on top of the pops when he's doing all that gaining and all that, you know, and he's got that dead long coat on the great collars and everything it was a lot of it's to the clothes and um <laughs> I don't want to mention the countries <laughs> but you know what I mean it was let's kind of skip like, that I know I think I think they're, I think they're um they deserve a lot more respect actually they made yeah, some great I, records in the early days I think so because they just see it's like Led Zeppelin people think oh heavy metal Led Zeppelin aren't heavy metal who, who get, you know they can rock they're not heavy metal. Lots of folk yeah. in there. Yeah, there's loads of like other elements, you know. And it pisses me off that when people say that yeah, yeah. just all these crap heavy metal bands. There's a great passage where you go to see uh, Slade, I think it is, but you're really interested in the sport band, Status Quo. So why was, uh, why, apart from the Wranglers, obviously, why Status Quo? Why did they make such an impression? Well, at the time, they were kind of like the dirty, greasy biker band, weren't they? You know, they weren't yeah. like, you know, um, the, the, the way they became sort of like, oh, they call it dad rock or whatever. It wasn't like that. It was like they were they were a heavy band. They were, you know, heads down, no nonsense, mindless boogie kind of thing, you know. And it, like we'd all gone to see them. We looked like, um, you know, in my chair and, you know, down to the dust pipe and all them sorts of things, you know. I think um, uh, Piledriver had just come out. Yeah. So it was paper, big one at the time, you know. It's just that sort of, you know, that rock thing, you know. It's kind of, um, it was just solid. And they were, they were great. They were fantastic. But then, like Slade came on and they sort of blew them off, <laughs> you know. Because they were even where they were even better. Maybe it was just I don't know. They were like because I wasn't. I, we hadn't gone to see Slade. Slade, but to us, were like a skinhead sort of pop band and wearing mad clothes and all that, and a bit like glammy and a bit crap. But they were bloody good, <laughs> and I've got loads of Slade albums now. It's interesting that you talk about so many of these really theatrical bands. We're going to get onto the Bunny Men later because your your kind of stage act, as it were, was actually very, 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 very restrained. But uh, the Sensational yeah. Alex Harvey Band is another one, which is, uh, I remember seeing too. Uh, you know, in the early seventies, I thought they were fantastic. Actually, yeah. What, what, well, you know, what, uh, what did you like? Brother. Well, you know, the, just the sort of com- comic book aspect of them. They seemed like in them days to be in a band was like. It was it was like you were a superhero or something. You were something else. You know, it was not it wasn't I'm sure people think of the same thing now when they're like thirteen or whatever, you know. But it was um it just seemed like unobtainable and they just seemed like special people. Like I get it, you know, people come up to me and they're all like, you know, and I'm well, I'm just like you, Mr. Bloke, <laughs> you know. But that they, they, they were just 
out there and kind of interesting. And I, I loved all that comic book stuff, you know, and Zal Clemenson with his jumpsuits on and all that sort of stuff. I, I like people that put on a bit of a show, even though we don't particularly. Yeah. And I like just stand there and look miserable. Um, <laughs> uh, so Dr. Feelgood, was, again, is another one, isn't it? You're absolutely I, enthralled by Dr. Feelgood. I haven't got the guts to, you know, don the fucking jumpsuit, you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> and like, bombs. But it was something about it, and it came from Bowie as well, you know, like, you know, all that sort of androgynous clothes and, you know, it was just so strange, wasn't it? You know, for them, you know. Um, yeah, and, and they, they were another band. They were dead tight. They could play really well. Uh, they didn't have too many, like, kind of wanky solos either. They were kind of yeah. a bit, you know. Um, I've just got a Gibson SG. Somebody gave it me and I made up because I feel like Zal Clemenson. <laughs> That's what he used to play, you know. Yeah, oh, they were, I thought they were wonderful, actually. Yeah. You went to see... Um... You went to see Roxy Music, and there's a bit where you and various others are kind of cheering Eno, much to the uh, chagrin of, uh, of Brian Ferry. But that's an interesting thing, because that's a real division in kind of rock music taste, isn't it? At that time, the people who really responded to electronic music. So why did that have such an appeal for you? It, it was just that otherworldly, wasn't he? You know, and he'd like, he kind of, he didn't do a lot. <laughs> you know, he sort of just ponced around at the back with feathers and twiddle knobs and he had a he had a tape player he had a yeah. box tape player and he'd mess around with that and put like sound effects going through stuff and it was just wow you don't have to play a guitar to be in a band you know and it was just so special and the, like Roxy Music are like them first you know half a dozen LPs are great aren't they you know um, and the first two with the Eno on they're, they're obviously my favourites you know and I've followed Eno ever since, you know, and he's just, I just think he's such an innovative bloke. You know? um, yeah, but we were all chanting, you know, Eno, Eno. I'm like, right. <laughs> I don't know whether that was the spark that led to him getting the elbow or what, but it was uh, definitely this town ain't big enough for the both of us. Absolutely. The, the Eric's is a, um, Eric's Club in Liverpool is a, 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 plays a really important part in the book. I, mean, a, I remember going there in about 1980, I think, to see you guys and the and the and the, the, um, and the teardrops and big in the in Japan. But I mean, yeah. that's it, it's sort of it's a little bit like the Two Eyes Coffee Club or it's or the Cavern or, or CBGBs or whatever. It just it was a very very important kind of nerve centre for the city, wasn't it? How did that come about? Do you think? Uh, well. It started off as like a kind of blues, kind of jazz club, I think. Um, and then it sort of just, because the, the, the bands were, you know, sort of appearing left, right and centre, you know, all these, you know, Wire and the Pistols or whoever, you know, and they started sort of just filtering in and it became like a thing, you know, it just became the place to see them bands. There was there was loads of there was another punk club called the Swinging Apple, but they didn't have bands on, or they didn't seem to. And um, I think I was a little bit later though. Eric's were right on the ball. Seventy six, they had the Pistols on and the Runways and Stranglers and all them them lot, you know. But um, I didn't. I wasn't going then, you know. I didn't go. I went. I only went sort of spring. But it had a real a real reputation for having kind of a 
really experimental groups and art group. You talk about seeing Pear Ubu with, oh, yeah. um, you, you know, it was, uh, smashing the, uh, the, the, the pig iron spike with a lump hammer, you know, that kind of thing. So, so there was... <laughs> Did you ever see them do that? No, I didn't know. At this great big, like, <laughs> it was the beginning of um, My Dark Age or something like that. And he kept, like, getting this big yeah. with a hammer, you know. And it was, like, swinging forward and early, and someone in the crowd, like, they were all, like, you know. Because it it's such a small place, and the stage was only, you know, a foot high of that, you know. Um like you see, you know, there's pictures, isn't there? The clash there, and everyone's on the stage. You know? Yeah. And I think you saw the early orchestral manoeuvres shows. You know, it was just a kind of slideshows and very experimental yeah. kind of art yeah. statements, really, weren't they? Yeah, yeah. But it was like that's what punk was great for. It you could do that. You know, there was a band called Dead Trout, and they used to play the drums with bananas. <laughs> <laughs> they were like a bit sort of avant-garde kind of yeah. odd, you know, um, just odd, you know. And we liked them, you know, what I mean, because they were so weird. I think they were from the Wirral. Yeah, a lot of what you write about is, is being very shy and, and uh, wanting to find some kind of identity. And so, was that a big part of wanting to form a group? Yeah, I think so. Probably, you know, I know when uh, when we started getting some sort of recognition, even like a little mention in the enemy or the sounds or whatever, that'd keep me going for a while, you know. And when I was at work, there was all these older waitresses and you know women that worked there, and they were all a bit, you know, kind of um, yeah, what's the word? <laughs> Forward. <laughs> <laughs> You know what I mean? They were kind of, and I was like that shy. But then after we started like doing gigs and things, I'd started coming out Michelle and sort of answering them back or one of them being cheeky, that sort of yeah. thing. But going, oh, you've really come out with your shell, you know. And um, I think it really helped me. You know, the band helped me survive. And I think it does with a lot of people in bands, you know. Um, you've got that, you've got that sort of, you know, there's four, yeah, and you're all in it together. And yeah. plus we've built then, you know. Uh, so it's kind of, it's like a comradeship, camaraderie. Really. Tell me about meeting Ian McCulloch, Mac, or Mackle, as you call him. You met him, I think, in Eric's, but he obviously made a huge impression because he'd never, I don't think he'd ever seen him sing or perform on stage or play, or and yet you felt you really wanted to work with him and, de- and develop a group. So what, 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 why did he make that big impression on you? He just looked great. Yeah, he looked like Bowie. You Describe know, what he looked like. Well, he had like this sort of vaguely spiky hair. He looked quite, you know, sort of androgynous. Um, he had uh, he used to wear um, like black jacket, you know, like a suit jacket kind of thing. He just looked cool, and he was he was dead thin, you know, and he always looked good in clothes. And um, yeah. He was just one of the heads in the in 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 the club, you know, that you'd see. And I didn't really know him, but he knew like that. He knew Paul Simpson, and he knew you know Wiley and all that lot, Julian. Uh, so he was kind of you'd seen him to nod to that sort of thing. So when when there was that party at Kirkland's, um, and I was there, I was there early, and he was there early, which is a first. And uh, <laughs> he. Um, I just sort of went out to him and said, what are, you, what are you doing? He said, I'm waiting for the gift of vision. 
Agent for the Bowie record. Yeah. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I sort of heard that he could sing. I didn't really know. You see, I didn't really... Like, I know he was sort of vaguely in teardrops or shallow madness or whatever they were called, but I don't think he really did many rehearsals with him. I think he did a bit. A lot of it was the pose, you know, it was like, you know, wear a band, you know, wear a band, a gang of poses kind of thing. It was kind of every week there'd be a new band, you know, like Julian Cope had won the Nova Mob for a while, you know. Um, me and Paul Simpson had this sort of industrial domestic thing you know which we never really did anything we just i think we made a paper bag and painted on it <laughs> domestic. That's, and we did some like vague cassette and stuff you know but it was all a bit there's, a, there's a lovely section about you writing songs with back when you start trying to write songs it's really interesting because you say that by your own admission that you're not technically very good you're you're a real amateur musician and so you're 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 aiming i suppose to, to for sort of atmospheres for sounds yeah. rather than traditional song structures is that right yeah but it's just i wasn't thinking oh i'm not a very good musician i'll, I'll aim for atmosphere and sounds yeah it's just a thing it was kind of um this is what i'll do you know yeah. I, I never really think about it that much i just let it happen it's weird you know i don't know where it comes from it just sort of happens and i don't like to analyze it too much in case it goes away you know, so even even live now, even though there's like we're we're within a structure, there's there's areas where there is no structure, and you can kind of, you know, I'll, I'll do something like the other day we played when we were doing um, rescue. It was yeah. I remember, like there's like a big loud bit in the middle where I'm kicking off, and I did some stuff that I'd never done before. You know, and it just appeared. I thought, oh, that's really good. I can't remember what it did now. It's gone. That was like... There's a lovely quote from Johnny Marr on the back of the book, actually. He says, when I first said Will Sargent, I knew it was a new time for guitar playing. What do you think he was responding to? Uh, 
probably me asking him for a quote. (laughs) 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 So um, I don't know. I don't know. I think um, it was just, there were so many bands appearing, you know, and even like the Gang of Four and Wire and Subway Sect, all them bands were full. We loved all them bands. They were kind of like, they weren't trying to be pop. Yeah. I really liked that, you know. Um, I think it comes from being in school when everybody was into like Chicory Tip and all that. And we were into like Tarkus and, yeah. and, you know, and Palmer or whatever. Well, you got very, sport. very, very principled, very clear views about the concept of what's rockist. And you talk about how much you hate things being rockist and you want to use none of those cliches. What are the, what are the kind of rockist cliches you were avoiding? Uh, you know, that sort of 12 bar blues stuff. You know, yeah, the stuff like Dr. Feelgood who were, you know, one of my favourite bands at the time. It's like, I, I learned, you know, I didn't know anything then. So it was kind of like, I didn't realise that it was just, you know, everybody does that 12-bar bluesy kind of thing, you know. So, you know, Sensei Alex Harvey band did it. And, you know, every, even Roxy Music. But Roxy Music did it with like a sort of tongue-in-cheek kind of way. It was kind of like, strange the way they did it you know they've got that bit on their remake remodel where they'll stop and it goes you know does like a little bass riff or whatever yeah but then you you know what I mean? it's just it's like it's kind of subverting the, the form and that's what I, I kind of like subverting the form you know so you've got to use chords you don't have to do that status quo change yeah. thing but you can you can kind of you know, even like um, Perubu, you know, um, there's one of theirs that does that like dead corny. Yeah, yeah. You know, when it's like kind of, um, but then it goes into like this mad stuff and he's got that dead high squeaky voice on the fucking metal. metal there's a great description of you playing the, the Lyceum. I was there actually in 1980 when you're supported by U2 and Bono kind of climbs okay. up all over the amps. And did, did you consider him to be very rockist and old school? Because your whole stage act was very, very uh, subdued, I suppose, wasn't it? We never thought anything about them, really. We just thought they were these divs, you know. And um, I, don't, I don't even think I watched them. <laughs> but you remember meeting him, don't you? Yeah, yeah, and he was he was a bit god bothery, you know. He was a bit, yeah. like, you know, preachy. Um, yeah, but I met him since, and he's he come across really good. Like, you know, he came across a really nice fellow, like, really. Um, I'm considering going to see that big dome thing, and oh, it'd be good to see it. Be really, good. I'd love to see that. Yeah, you make a really but good it, point it, about the teardrops. It, too. Oh, sorry, go on. Sphere thing. It's like the band. It's like. You know, they're like little dots, aren't they, on that round stage? Yeah. So look at that. We're all looking at that, aren't they? So it's kind of, it's a bit weird that such an ego-driven kind of band or whatever don't mind releasing it and just saying, well, look at all this instead. Yeah, you know, it's like Pink Floyd, isn't it? You know, it Pink Floyd was still going, they'd be doing that. It's all yeah. about the spectacle, completely. Yeah. You make a really good point about the teardrops and say that um, teardrop explosions. You talk about, you know, that bunny men make the sound that can go on forever, but the teardrops are just kind of too fiddly and too clever for their own good. So yeah, they, had really... like, they had a sort of jazz vibe, you know, from Julian's. Yeah. You know, it was kind of like, 
too smart ass somehow. Yeah. I think he tried to get rid of that later on when he did his solo stuff, you know, trying to get a bit more garage bandy or whatever. But um yeah, they were all always a bit too yeah, you know, you know. Not for me. Uh like I quite liked it when, when Paul Simpson was still in it and it was kind of it was a bit more like can or something. It was just yeah. strange, you know. Uh, and Mick Finkler, you know, he was really good. But they, they got, you know, they, Paul left and then Mick Finkler got the elbow. It's like, you get session people in that it was just strange and weird. Why do that, you know? Why do you think it took off so fast for the money man? Because was it to do with you being played on Peel or was it the press you were getting? Because, you know, you talk about the other Liverpool bands being rather envious of your immediate success. Why did it happen so quickly? Uh, I don't know. I think it's a combination of, of you know, just the sound and, like, math looking so, you know, good. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And overall, like, Les looked amazing as well, and Pete, you know. Um, I was the little ugly one. <laughs> <laughs> well, when I look at the pictures now, I think, no, it wasn't. <laughs> Boy, Not remotely. It's amazing how important those pictures were. You know, you went to Iceland, didn't you, for porcupines? Yeah. That amazing ocean rain shot, I think, in Cornwall. I mean, who's who? Who was it who realised the value of those album sleeves in, in promoting the concept of of, of Echo in the Body? Rob Dickens at that one. He was like, you know, he wanted Brian Griffin to take the photos. Yeah, and then Brian got this kind of da da kind of aesthetic if you like so he just he doesn't think like a normal rock photographer you know he sort of just you know one of his first things is that Joe Jackson cover where it's just a pair of white winkle pickers that's right the rep rep company hated it like if I'd have known that he'd done Joe Jackson I'd have been well I'm not having him (laughs) you know what I mean because that that Joe Jackson was not in in my cool um, pamphlet so but yeah Brian Griffin was instrumental in a lot of that stuff he was he thought of them ideas they're incredible pictures and the press yeah. I mean you were never out of the papers and yet weirdly Mac was actually I mean Mac was really the only one that people tended to interview anyway but he was very uncooperative and grumpy wasn't it do you think do you think that was your your press uh, uh, agent Mick Houghton was an old pal of ours kind of I think used that as a positive didn't he that was the character yeah. of the group well it makes you more desirable if you're not as easily you know, available. Yes. You know, it's, we wish we could get them, wish we, you know. So yeah. it's kind of, it, you know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of like Spandau Ballet, right? When they started up in London and they were doing them kind of parties and things. And it was like a mystery about them and like you can't get in or whatever, you know. They were doing like uh, like these kind of, I don't know, where, where was it the Beat Roots or somewhere? That's or, right, it was, yeah. The, the, some club in London or something. And it felt like amazing, you know. Uh, I can remember like really liking that, you know, um, our first single, the 12 inch, has got the big long, what is it called? Um, it's got like a dead long three minute intro, just like this riff on a synth. I remember really liking that. And there was something like that, you know, some, something about that where, it, you know, unobtainable kind of thing that makes you, more interested I yeah. think do it you know but we did it yeah you know. but we, we weren't sort of purposely I don't think we were purposely doing that we were a bit snotty as well and we thought that all well, the, 
the press people were dibs, you know. You know, <laughs> you know, you're going around with like a notebook in your gas mask case and the wine is starting to ban, you know. You know what I mean? So there was a bit of that and we felt like we were above everybody. It was total, you know, it's arrogance. Um Well it worked. Yeah, it worked. It really worked. <laughs> I love all the scriptures of of going to America the first time because you're, it's the most wonderful, fresh kind of observation of what that was like. People hadn't been touring America at that time much and everything about America, we didn't know much about America, everything about American life was thrilling. Why do you think the Americans were so obsessed with British bands? Because they were, weren't they? And they, they, they yeah, they no, all the adored bands. The yeah, all the American bands were getting the ump. It seemed like, you know, that they couldn't get gigs and things, you know. And I remember speaking to, I think it was some bar, I think it might have been Green on Red or someone like that. And they um, they were like, you know, it's, you can't get us played on the radio. You've got to be British to get on the radio, you know, on the college yeah. radio. Um, I don't know. I think it was just because there was such a big influx and because the, the British punk scene was completely different to the American punk scene. Like, Really, what have you got in the American punk scene? It all came later, didn't it? It was all like X and, you know, um, what's it called? Uh, Holiday in Cambodia, Giza. You know, Dead Kennedys. Yeah. They seemed to, after our first wave, well, right, there was the Ramones, you know, but they were... It's a different kind of punk, though, isn't it? Yeah, it was, it was you know, I was thought to them as like status quo with drain pipes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I love the Ramones. Get me wrong, I love them, you know. But yeah. I went to, I went to London to see him. London, aye. <laughs> <laughs> All the way to London. I'd see Led Zeppelin in London as well. That was great. But um, yeah, the um, it was a different thing, and it was kind of like there were so many. It was like a big explosion, wasn't it? Yeah. You know, from X-ray specs to wire to. Oh God, you know, Eater, everybody, you know, there was like this whole thing. And um, I just think uh, in, in America, they just got it, you know. And by the time the 80s come along, it's kind of morphed into this post-punk thing, although it wasn't called that then. It was just yeah. a continuation of it. Like we considered ourselves punk when we started. You know, we were all, we were listening to, you know, all the punk records that, you know, Norman was playing at Eric's and everything. Um, yeah, Ultravox were really punk at the beginning. You know, that one, Young Savage, it's a great track, but they, they changed. Uh, I don't know. I think it was um, the image. A lot of it's to do with who the image. You, who did you think of as being your main rivals? Did you think like that? I mean, do you think that there were certain bands that you wanted to kind of outrank? Um. Well, those are the obvious ones, isn't it? You know, Simple Minds and you too. Really. We didn't sort of worry about the Smiths too much. You know, we didn't really worry about anybody, but we didn't, like, the Smiths seemed to be separate somehow. They were a kind of a bit more for girls or something. <laughs> <laughs> um, I love so the bit did. in, I think you're in Australia where you were, uh, a simple mind to touring at the same time, and you find yourselves in a bar, and they're literally just just across the way from you, and yet you don't even acknowledge each other's presence. It's not even yeah. a question of ignoring you. You simply don't respond to the fact that the other band is there. Why? Why are bands? Why? Why are they like that? Um, 
I think it's a self-preservation thing. I don't know. It's like, you know, like now I'll talk to anybody, you know, and uh, have a laugh with anyone and I'm not bothered. Like we do a vinyl night at the pub and you can play anything. You can play Kylie Minogue. I'm not, nobody judges. But then yeah. I'll have like, you know, Noyon next or something, you know. So it's kind of, um, it's just, it's all music, innit? So, but um, yeah, I don't know. We did the same with the Jesus and Mary chain. They were walking down King's Road one time. They clocked us and we clocked them. Yes, you mentioned we, that you did. Nobody looks at the others. Yeah. Well, just Extraordinary. I'm sure if we'd have said, all right, you know, but then again, I did say, like, we were, um, when we were doing Electrofiction, me and Mac, we did, you know, before we got sort of started Bunny Man up again, if you like. Um, we were in uh, a radio station in. Uh, America somewhere and that band um, what were they called Seahorses was it yeah John Squire's um, group yeah and I said oh, alright and he just like blanked us but I, I like I knew that they, the, the Stone Roses were kind of fake bunny men fans so I knew who we were you know and he was like it was a bit off I was thinking yeah I won't say hello to anybody else yeah. anymore <laughs> I thought it would be like, you know, we're both in America. Like that's maybe he was doing what we were doing with the simple minds. You know what I mean? Could well have been. <laughs> are there any bands that you think you can see? Are there any places you can see the kind of influence of Echo and the Bodymen in, 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 in other groups? Oh, there's loads of them in there. Interpol, Buddy, you know, the Killers. There's loads of bands that are influenced by us, you know, Pavement. Um, Yeah, there's loads. Like, I think there's like U2. <laughs> I saw a thing on the on the U2 the other day. I was like on this, on this, they were in the dome thing. And he did this, they answered this little guitar thing. Went, That's just like me, that. <laughs> it was like a little, you know, thing yeah. that I do. Very flattering. Yeah, it was cool. Like, you know, I thought, that's all right. Is there anything you would have done differently if you could do it all again? I think we should have not. We should have tried to persuade Mac not to leave somehow. Uh, but he was like adamant. Uh, I think that was a bad move. And, you know, it led us to start, you know, going on with a different singer and all that. That was just, it was all craziness. A lot of that was to do with the bloke of the label. Yeah. Rob. He, he said, what are you going to do? I said, why don't you get another singer? And uh, we were like, well, that's sort of thing your auntie would say, isn't it? You know, uh, But because he'd said it and he was like the head honcho at Warner's or whatever, we thought, well, yeah, let's try it. It might work. You know? It's a very sore point still. I'm sure. I'm sure. So the audience, you're still playing now, and in fact, you've got a date coming up in America soon, you know. Do, do the audience, are there still the great coats and the vertical hair in the audience? There's not so much vertical hair as, <laughs> you know. There was a guy in Smash Hits when I was there who was obsessed yeah. with the bunny men, and he used to he used to, he used to have Max hair, and the, and the way he kept it vertical was with raw egg and orange juice. Oh, right. That's and how did Mac keep his hair vertical? He used Coca-Cola, I think. <laughs> <laughs> You know, Elnet. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But we all had good hair. We all had interesting hair. 
Les's quiff was amazing. Yeah, it was. Yeah. It's stupendous. And uh, Pete had this kind of schoolboy floppy fringe, floppy side part. Yeah, it was. Um, well, you've got amazing. the American tour. You, I mean, you you know, there will be presumably the third volume coming out soon of the memoirs. Well, I've already started um, compiling things I want to write about, and there's loads. Because, you know, we recorded in Paris, me and Les were cycling around yeah. Paris. You know, in between, you know, we'd go from the hotel to the thing and the studio. And it was just, it was, you know, we went, we went on holiday to Russia, me and Les, and Bill bought our lighting man, and Jay. Bill went to Russia in 1983 on a lobby. That's when the, uh, you know, the Cold War was properly on. Yeah, yeah. It was it was kind of like an indoctrination kind of thing. We had to go on these sort of political, politically motivated tours. You know, we had, every day we had to do. We were doing something with. We had a chaperone. We went in this bus, and we'd go see. I don't know the mass graves at Leningrad or whatever. You know, and we'd go to Lenin's uh, house where he was his grandma's yeah. house, or exiled and. All that sort of stuff, you know. But we well, all that the, seems; those memories seem so valuable now. It's a really important part no, of uh, it, it. It has really historic value. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like which I thought was, well, I felt that very much about your, particularly about your first book about the sixties. Yeah, which is terrific. Well, they're they're both terrific, and we look forward very much, Will, to the third one. And uh, very nice to talk to you. Echoes, nice there it is, available in all good bookshops, as is Bunny Man. Well, it's lovely to talk to you, and we'll see you soon. Many thanks. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.